Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. I'm Shelley Pash, and I'm the business specialist and ecosystem builder for Kansas Main Street and have been in the field of ecosystem building for about 14 years. And today, once again, I get to chat with my friend, Mr. Don Mackey, who is with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, hosted by Network Kansas. And gosh, Don, you've worked in the field of community economic development throughout North America for more than 40 years. That's as long as Main Street's been around. How great is that? <laughs> it so. is. And one of the first Main Street communities that I was aware of is when my home now, Lincoln, Nebraska, oh. was one of the early Main Street communities when we redeveloped the Haymarket District, the old warehouse district in Lincoln. Fantastic. Very cool. See? All this new trivia, I'm going to have to keep it like buried and, you know, bring it out every once in a while when we have that. So awesome. Well, hello and welcome. Glad to be with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Shelley. Yes, yes, yes. So today we are talking about likely entrepreneurial development opportunities, focusing on new resident attraction and entrepreneurship. So I will kick it off a little bit with New resident attraction is one of E2's likely entrepreneurial development opportunities that you've mentioned before. So why is E2's likely entrepreneurial development opportunity background and or what is it? So can you kind of tell me a little bit about what that is with the upcoming strategy guide series? You bet, Shelley. So Of course, we have done analysis throughout North America of a wide range of communities. And as part of that, we've begun to curate a list of what we're calling those likely entrepreneurial development opportunities. And it's based on the themes that we're picking up from genuine opportunities that are rooted in various communities. And there's some really obvious ones when you think about entrepreneurship, working with growth-oriented entrepreneurs who have that capability of creating lots of jobs and tax base and the kinds of things we want from economic development. There's also, you know, some real obvious things that are rooted in traditional economic development, like how do we help our local businesses to become much more competitive in capturing spending, even though they're facing intense competition from e-commerce and box stores and, you know, franchises. But one of the 10 is new resident attraction. And for folks who are thinking about entrepreneurship, they go, well, why would that be an opportunity? So it is. And as part of this project, we are developing strategy guides that will be available. This one will be released as part of this podcast for each of the 10 areas that we have identified to help communities say, maybe this is a priority. Let's organize around it and let's see what we can do. Absolutely. So you also mentioned resident attraction. So we know regions can grow economies through entrepreneurship that encourage placemaking. You know, we've got people 
attraction and greater economic wealth. So how is this entrepreneurial development opportunity for communities? So on resident attraction. Yeah. So, you know, within our prosperity framework, we talk about the three essentials for rural community prosperity. Obviously, entrepreneurship as a way to create a more competitive, diverse, resilient economy. You know, you got to have an economy if you're going to have a community. The second, of course, is quality of life placemaking. When we embrace the idea of people-centered economic development, which entrepreneurship is, you know, the quality of the community counts, you know, for not only the entrepreneurs, but their families, their employees and their families. Are there the kinds of amenities and culture where people want to live? Our friends at the Nebraska Community Foundation calls this magnetic communities. And the third is really rooted in the reality that for a long time, really following World War I, when rural America kind of peaked, we have been losing people. And so new resident attraction is really critical. And there's some dimensions as it relates to entrepreneurship. But the bottom line is, if we don't have the kind of communities and the kind of economy where people have the choice to come back if they want to, or to move into that community, community economic development gets to be a real tough game for a lot of communities. It does. And we've seen it. And we've seen the positives and we've seen some of the negatives and the challenges for sure. So. So for decades, the primary migration pattern was from rural to urban. And as we've noted numerous times in our discussions that we've talked about, and from your pandemic recession future trends paper with Ben Winchester's work, right, illustrates the rural remigration and 30-year-olds to rural creating new opportunities. Are Americans and non-Native Americans moving to those rural communities Yeah, I think it's so important because economic development, community development gets easier if we're kind of going with the current as opposed to fighting the trends or the headwinds. And based on the work that people like Randy Cantrell at the University of Nebraska, Ben Winchester at the University of Minnesota, it's clear that there's some counter trends. Now, the primary trend still is rural to urban. America continues to urbanize. The most recent census says 86% of all Americans live in larger cities. But there are these counter trends, and we see it with two groups. Those 30-year-olds who maybe grew up there, moved away, have decided to come back But also, we see a growing number of people who in midlife and also those early retirees who are making the decision to leave the cities and to move to rural. And so if we think about the non-rural newcomers, the folks who never lived in rural, they're not coming back because they want to be close to family. There's three primary factors, cost, congestion, and perceptions about safety. And so if we think about early retirees, they're cashing into that $2 million home in Denver because maybe they haven't saved enough for retirement. They're moving to a great rural community. They're able to buy a wonderful property for a quarter of a million. And, you know, that leaves them a million and three quarters and change to invest in their quality of life in their retirement. 
Congestion's important. We see this in the survey data that for these folks, the idea that they don't have to spend two hours on I-5, you you can pick your interstate system in our cities. You know, if they want to go golf or if they want to go across town to shop, it's a few minutes. And there are perceptions of safety, not that necessarily rural communities are any safer than urban communities. You know, some are, some aren't. But there's a perception that there's less crime, and so those are motivations. When we think about rural returnees, those that maybe grew up there and moved back, the survey data is really clear. They're coming back because of family and friends. You know, maybe they've got parents or grandparents, or they've got friends they want to be close to. It's a lifestyle choice. Again, that less congestion, that different pacing opportunities for space and freedom, maybe to own a few acres and to have a horse or some animals. And of course, the whole advent of distributed work, the ability to be employed one place and live another has really opened up the opportunities for people to make a much wider choice of where they want to live with respect to how they make a living. So here's a question. How do we know if people are working in one community and living in another community, how does that data end up coming out? So it's emergent. There's some good national data. And of course, with the pandemic, it wasn't unusual if you were on Zoom and somebody said, yeah, I'm living in Florida right now, or I'm living in (laughs) Lake Tahoe or whatever, because people went all over to find a place to live. And because of the pandemic, we're connecting by technology to their work. So there's some really good national research that clearly indicates a growth in what our friend John O'Doon, who we just did a podcast with John out of San Francisco. He's a specialist in this area. He calls it distributed work, and it's been increasing for a long time, and there's good national research. It's a little harder, Shelley, to determine just how much of that is occurring in rural communities. But what we do know is a couple of things. One is when we talk to leaders in rural communities, raise this question, they immediately start saying, oh, this person, this family, this group that has moved into the community, their employer is across the country or maybe across the state or in the next county. And so we have that kind of antidotal evidence. But we also, when we start looking at the Census Bureau and the data that they gather through sampling and surveys with commuters, that when you look at people who live in your county and look at where they work, you know, we just did this up in Norton County in Kansas. And, you know, Some of the numbers that were pretty high were Wichita and Denver and Omaha. And you go, well, you know, they're not commuting. (laughs) I mean, they're not getting in the car and driving to Wichita to work. (laughs) Not from Norton. (laughs) Not from Norton, no. But they're employed by somebody there. And so that gives us an indication. And that data has shown a real clear trend of more and more employers who are not within the county. And I think that's evidence along with the stories that we get from rural leaders that this is happening and have every reason to believe with the post-pandemic, when we get to a post-pandemic, this trend's likely to continue now that we've established that this kind of distributed work is feasible 
and actually for a lot of employees is a much better fit. That opens up huge opportunities for rural communities. Yes. And yes, we've actually heard there, if there wasn't a disruption in the productivity, then everybody was pretty happy about it. So that's pretty nice. So you mentioned the many faces of rural America. Can you expand on these different rural Americas and the implications and new resident attraction and entrepreneurship? Well, I mean, again, one of the strengths here in the United States is our diversity. I mean, we have been a land of immigrants for a long time. And with each wave of new residents, that's enriched our communities. And while that's primarily been occurring in our biggest cities, I mean, those tend to be the places where new residents come first. It's also happening in rural America. And so the diversity if we define it in the traditional ways of race and ethnicity, obviously is increasing. We've got a growing number of rural counties that are minority majority based on race and ethnicity. But we're also seeing the full palette of American diversity that is beginning to appear in rural communities. And part of this is the ability for distributed work. But it also reflects just the changing demographics. If you think about it, in another 20 years, the majority of Americans will not be the traditional white population or Caucasian population. Mm -hmm. Let's hope not. More and more people are identifying as diverse in their racial background. But if we also want to think about in terms of age and gender, sexual orientation, you know, the various wonderful facets of diversity. And I think rural communities have a choice. They can embrace this as an opportunity and create the kind of welcoming communities where that diversity can grow or not. And we saw this with our case study in Ord, where, you know, when we looked at the hundred new entrepreneurial ventures or acquisitions that occurred in the community, 70% of those were from what we call non-traditional residents. And, you know, they're new to the community, they're young to the community, they're women. And it just speaks to the fact that this is happening. But as a community, you have to be prepared to embrace it because folks are not going to move to communities where they're tolerated and particularly if they're not welcome. Right. And we have to certainly be welcoming and communicate and listen and be empathetic and listen, <laughs> and network and connect and listen. You know, that's the biggest thing is that, yeah, we just, you're right, be welcoming. So I know you've got some stories for sure of some urban residents moving rural. I know you've mentioned before about Klamath Falls in Oregon. So I'm sure you've got other stories. Would you care to share some with our listeners? Yeah, let me share three. You know, we've got a new initiative here in Nebraska called E3, Energizing Entrepreneurial Ecosystems with our friends with the Nebraska Community Foundation, the Kauffman Foundation, Network Kansas is part of this, and Keith County, where I went to high school in Ogallala many, many moons ago. <laughs> Proud graduate of the Ogallala High School. Hooray! <laughs> and, you know, Keith County is home to what some people refer to as Lake McConaughey or Big Mac. And, and Lake McConaughey is the largest freshwater 
body of water in the entire central part of the U.S. It has amazing sand beaches. It's just a remarkable resource in that part of the country. And so I was recently digging into what's going on in Keith County. And of course, I'm interested. This is one of my hometowns. And I noticed that for the first time in almost 20 years, Ogallala has actually posted positive population with the 2010 to 2020 census. But when I dug into the data, and with help from Christy Peterson, who pulled the data for me, we discovered that the fastest growing part of Keith County was not Ogallala along the interstate. It was actually the community at Lake McConaughey. And, you know, we know people go there from Memorial Day to Labor Day to take advantage of that wonderful resource. But we also know that it's a growing population of permanent residents who are calling that home. What's interesting is about half of those new residents are from outside of Keith County, and they're coming from Denver, and they're coming from Omaha, and they're saying, this is a great resource. It's a great place to live. I'm going to put down roots. And so it just speaks to the fact that these folks, many of them are entrepreneurs. They still have business interests in other parts of the country. They're diversifying the community and the economy. So that's one example. Another one is Keene, New Hampshire. You know, we had the chance to be part of Radical Rural with the Hannah Grimes group. Yeah. Yeah, Marianne Christensen and and that whole group of people who are just wonderful. Well, you know, Keene, New Hampshire is in the very southwest part of New Hampshire and You know, New Hampshire's really been impacted by Boston growing into southern Maine and New Hampshire, and Keene's kind of on the outer periphery of that growth. But again, a great community, historic New England history. This time of year, it's gorgeous with the trees. But again, Keene is being energized by new residents who are moving in. And again, many of them are acquiring businesses, starting businesses, or they're retaining business interests maybe in Boston or other large cities. And then you mentioned Klamath Falls. I was just on a call today with Kat Rutledge, who is the leader of Klamath Idea and Entrepreneurship Initiative. I knew you would bring them up. Oh, yeah. Kat Kat is one of my (laughs) favorite people, and she has worked so hard with her partners in Klamath Falls. And again, Klamath Falls is one of these what we call Nick's Best Places. So, you know, we've seen the migration of people out of Portland and Seattle and San Francisco into rural Oregon and communities like Bend and Medford and Redding have seen tremendous growth because of this influx. And actually, my niece and her husband, he's an entrepreneur, does really neat engineering stuff. They picked up out of Silicon Valley, moved to Bend, took his business with them. An example of that. Well, you know, a house... And Klamath Falls is going to cost you about half what it does now in Bend. Compared to like San Francisco, where you better have $2 million for that house, you know, a quarter of a million is going to buy you a decent house in Klamath Falls. And so, again, this is a community that is beginning to see new resident attraction. It's energizing their entrepreneurial talent pool diversifying the community. But again, they're on the front edge of that wave and a great illustration of these forces 
that are creating an opportunity for us to attract new residents if we're prepared to embrace them and say, you know, you don't have to be here for three generations before you're one of us. I think we need to be a little quicker on that trigger if we're going to make this work. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, those are great stories. <laughs> I was going to say, what a great story, but you had a few of them in there. So that's fantastic. So the media is full of the widening gap between rural and urban America, culturally and politically. So I know I've got thoughts on how rural communities can address urban perceptions. But what do you think a way to address the urban perceptions to empower new resident attractions? What do you think? Yeah. Well, of course, as you know, I grew up in rural Nebraska, so my heart is in rural. And even though I live in Lincoln, Lincoln is still, even though it's a metropolitan area, it's still a small town by international standards. And I really think the burden is on our rural communities in a lot of ways. And that is to really make the case that we are ready to accept and welcome new residents. We know that we have to deal with some negative press, that rural America's dying, that it's parochial, it votes the wrong way, it doesn't like people of color. I mean, there's all of that stuff. And, you know, if you're trying to market your community, I think the best way you can do that is by highlighting the people who have chose to move there or live there. And almost every community has increasing diversity. And so by giving voice to the folks who have said, this is a great community, I've been welcomed, I have an opportunity to move forward. I think about Sarah with Utopia Spa and Ord. You know, she grew up there, she moved back, and she has been embraced and supported in the community. And her testimonial is a powerful message to others that if you come here, this community is going to get to know you. It's going to give you a fair shake and give you an opportunity. But I think we have to step back. And if we have that chip on our shoulder that, well, people from the cities, we don't know about you. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're just dead in the water. And you got to get past that and you got to get past the chip on our shoulders that sometimes we have that, you know, the coastal media paints us in really negative ways. Some of that's deserved, but a lot of it is we simply have to show that we can be a community where you can have a great home to live, work and play. And for folks that are looking they're going to quickly recognize those attributes. And as long as they're genuine and we're working hard to make it happen, again, the three examples I shared, these communities have figured out how to do it and folks are moving to them and we could show a hundred more where this is happening. So we know this is doable, but we got to make the case that we want you. Right, right, right. I agree. And just like we said, the be welcoming, as we said just a few minutes ago, and listening and communicating. And, you know, our networks and our communities become effective when we engage with each other and we listen and we respond and we collaborate together and solving those problems. And it's just amazing to me the stories that are so apropos with what you're going and diving right into. And it's, those are just fantastic examples. Well, and I know you'll get this, Shelley. I think part of it too is to think about how people who aren't familiar with your community but are looking to move rural, they kind of identify a part of the country that they want to move to. And then they get up on websites and they start looking. 
So it's really critical that when people do a search of your community, what do they see? Do you have good social media? Do you have a good website? And is it not just pictures of places, but it's testimonials about people in the community illustrating the quality, the culture of the community? I was thinking about that when you were talking about the woman from Ord, you know, in her place. And I'm like, see, you know, we talked to businesses about businesses being able to get testimonials, but you should have testimonials for your community as well. Absolutely. And if you'll do that, then you got a chance that they'll come visit. And if they have a favorable impression and then they look Big at the cost picture. of real estate, yeah, <laughs> sure. now you've got a shot. And so I think the guide will talk about these strategy elements that'll help folks begin to get a little more intentional about how you position yourself to be a successful community and welcoming new residents. Right, right. So, Don, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for the discussion today. Make sure, because I know you've done a few, you've had a few things in there that you wanted to share with us and the listeners on how they can learn more about the topics today. Yeah, well, Anne, of course, who will be putting this out to our listeners and those who follow our work, there'll be a number of things that we're going to share. Some specific ones to this topic is we'll share once again our paper on likely entrepreneurial development opportunities, so you can learn about all 10 of those. We'll share our strategy paper on new resident attractions so that you can actually look at least our thinking on how you can do this based on communities that are in fact doing this. And thirdly, we're going to share our paper, which we shared before you and I talked about this. America is filling up opportunities for rural communities. That'll give you an idea of these powerful forces of cost congestion and safety and motivating people to relocate. And of course, Shelley, the one-stop place is to go to our website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. That's where you can access all of our resources. You can join our National Practitioners Network and access our resources for growing an entrepreneurial economy. Sign up for our free newsletter. And of course, you can figure out which of your preferred landing places are to get the podcast. Sure. So many platforms we're out there on. Absolutely. (laughs) So Don, it has been great to have you on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. It was always, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, Shelley, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for the work you do. And this was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. (music) 